to the SLP Corner podcast. I am so excited for my guest this week. I have my mentor on. Carrie is here to share all about articulation and strategies that she has developed through her years of working as an SLP. I'm going to have her introduce herself in a minute, but I want to say first, I have mentioned my mentor, like on my Instagram, on my Instagram stories, probably on my podcast. And I refer to things. I'm like, oh, my mentor taught me this, or my mentor said this. And I've done stories like I had a, um, I had stories up a few months ago. I remember where I was like, I just got off a call with my mentor and my mentor taught me this today. And so you've all heard about my mentor. And so now she is on my podcast. Um, I'm just so excited to have a chat with her. She always teaches me so much every time we chat and she's even agreed to continue our chats despite the mentorship program coming to an end, which I'm so thankful for. She's always teaching me things. So I was like, you know what, maybe you could come on my podcast and teach everyone something <laughs> and not just me. Um, and she agreed to it. So she's coming on today and yeah, we're going to be talking all about articulation. So before we jump into that, Carrie, if you could introduce yourself, give a little information about where you are, what type of SLP practice you're working and all that. Well, hello, everyone. Wow, I, that was quite a buildup. I hope I, <laughs> I hope I come through. Uh, it's been so wonderful getting to know Shannon. I feel like we're more friends now than anything. So uh, I am coming to you from all the way across the other side of the country in New Brunswick, and uh, it's currently like over 40 degrees here with the Humidex, so it's, uh, I'm very glad that this is audio, not uh, video, because you'd probably see me sweating. Uh, anyway, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm a SLP who works in private practice, and I have been working for 25 years, which is as long as Shannon has been alive. We just realized that. And I have learned uh, a few things along the way, I hope. Uh, and I'm happy to share those ideas with you. So happy to be talking about articulation because it's a huge part of what we do. Sometimes it's uh, disguised as the only thing that we do, which we have to be better at communicating about. But it is a huge part of our job. So happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so... To dive into our topic today, we're going to talk about feedback for students, and we're also going to be talking about shaping for the placement of articulation targets. Let's just dive right in to ideas on shaping placement and manner for some common articulation targets. I gave some thought to what I felt were probably some really common articulation targets, and I came up with seven of the frequent sounds that I typically work on. Uh, sometimes they're sounds on their own and sometimes they're sound pairs, which we often see. So maybe we can just kind of dive into some really common sounds that we find ourselves working on. And I can give you guys each of some little tips and stuff that I use for these sounds. Okay, perfect. So we could start with F, go from there. F is a, a very common phoneme that I work on with a lot of preschool age younger children. Uh, it's a sound that typically kids will substitute a p sound for. So I will often use F and P in minimal pairs sometimes too, just to show them the difference between their substituted sound uh, with the actual sound itself. So what's nice about this sound, it's very visual. Uh, using mirrors or switching the camera around on your tablet or your phone is really helpful because kids can see the sound really well. I refer to it as the bite and blow sound. 
Uh, I've also referred to it as fussy fish uh, or francy fish. You'll find uh, some of the descriptive cues that I use with kids. They come from a program called Zoophonics, which is a really common literacy program. The reason why I use a lot of the descriptive and animal type cues with kids is because the programs that I work with, the kids use that program. And so sometimes when you introduce a new, you know, animal relation or a cue or something like that, it can be confusing if you're not using something consistent with what they're already learning from a literacy perspective. So I try to incorporate that as much as I can. So what I tell the kids is, you know, with bite and blow, that when they bite on their bottom lip, they shouldn't think or feel an ouch. It shouldn't be biting hard on your lip. It should just be biting enough so that you can feel the air come through your upper teeth. Uh, and, you know, it, it's kind of a fun sound to do too. Like I said, it is very visual. It's one that I'll often tell parents when you're brushing your teeth at night, if you're working on this particular sound, it's a great time to do that. You know, you can look in the mirror and make funny faces while you bite and blow. Uh, so I, I will pair it sometimes with V, but I find the phoneme V is a later developing sound. It's not very common either, the v sound. So if I'm just showing kids that there's a quiet and a noisy counterpart for F, then I'll, you know, give them a, a model for V, but often I don't work on V at the same time as F. Um, so yeah, so some of my young kids uh, uh, will take their lips, their upper and lower lips, and they will press them together and blow without using their teeth. And it's almost like blowing a raspberry, you know, with babies that go, you know, like that, but it doesn't sound like that at all. It only sounds blowing and it, it's, I, I find it very difficult for me to do, but they're very good at doing it without the teeth. So to me, if they have the manner, so you'll hear me talk a lot about placement cues and manner cues, right? So if they have the the manner and it sounds blowy like the F should, but their their lips are together rather than their teeth, I leave it alone if it's really hard for them to do the bite. But for most cases, it's easy for kids to transition back to a bite and blow. So yeah, so it's it, it's you know I'll tell them too. You know it sounds like when you sigh and you're frustrated. You know it, it can sound like that and. So that tends to work better for school age kids, you know, because they understand, you know, that emotion. And so there's sometimes some cues that I find work better for preschool age and other cues that work better for school age kids. So, so that's a pretty visual, easy one. So, yeah. Okay. Awesome. I've never even heard someone say just bite and blow. That is so well, easy for kids to grasp on too. And it's very specific, right? I, I think the key, the cues you'll hear me describe and that I use personally that, you know, and these are cues that I have, you know, kind of thought of through my years of working. Some of them are based on, you know, a lot of education programs that I've participated in over the years. Some come from peers and colleagues. Parents have given me really good ideas about certain sounds. And so I've kind of just developed a lot of these cues that I found have worked particularly well for me just from all of those, all, that whole pot of ideas that I've collected. So yeah, so, but I mean, the, the key to me is to be very specific for kids with your feedback, to give them cues that are helpful for them to achieve that placement in that manner that you need them to achieve uh, that, you know, are going to move them forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. 
All right. Thank you for that. I find like that just alone, you guys. Now everyone listening knows why I look so forward to my talks with my mentor because she has so much <laughs> advice. Um, okay. So F, bite and blow. I like how you said there shouldn't be an ouch. <laughs> and um, now for K and G. So common. K and G. Um, I feel like K and G, as well as the R, which we'll get to later on, uh, those are sounds that almost SLPs dread, right? Uh, now, whereas F is very visual, the K and the G sound are not at all. Uh, and they, they, but having said that, they're a very common error for preschool children, right? And even some early school age children as well. So typically, you know, K sounds like a T, right? So we hear tat for cat. The G sounds like a D, right? We hear do for go. So what I've used with those, and I, I joke, I, I used to joke with my mom because I, I said I'm a Carrie, but I often thought I should have been a Terry because I've gotten way more Terries over the years than I've gotten Carries. Uh, but I do find myself working on these phonemes a lot, even though they're hard to work on. So, you know, they, K can be Katina Cat, uh, G I refer to as Gordo Gorilla. With the K, I find you can do just a cough. I, I usually started off with, you know, it's the coughing sound, you know, you just, you know, pretend that you have a cold and you can cough. It works okay for some kids, but I, I found that I still was really challenged at getting kids to actually kind of conceptualize what it meant for the back of their tongue to hit that hard palate, right? Because that's really what we want to do. With the T, the tongue tip is going up to hit the arch, you know, your oral cavity. With K, you don't want that tongue tip up. You know, you want the midline at the back part of the tongue to come up. I've used tongue depressors. I've used uh, spoons. I've used those flat suckers that you get um, to hold the tongue tip down. For kids that are really just having a hard time getting that movement of the mid to back of their tongue hitting the hard palate. I have had them use their fingers to hold it down. I find with fingers, it's slippery. So they, you know, they'll, they'll hold the front of their tongue down and then they'll go, uh, you know, and, the, and they'll just move it back. So uh, tongue depressors I found have been most successful for me. Uh, but once they get a feel for where the tongue should be, one of the really sick, most successful descriptive cues that I've found is I, I live in New Brunswick and right now I've, you know, we're in a heat wave, but we also have freezing cold weather in the, in the winter time. So our kids are very familiar with their parents scraping ice from the windshield of their car. And so I, Shannon and I have talked about this before. I will have the kids, you know, imagine that their tongue is the scraper that you, you know, that you scrape across a windshield that's really icy. And so you, you have the back of your tongue scrape across your hard palate and you hold that sound and you make a sound. And it's been really, I, I've, I don't, I can't even remember how I came up with that idea. It just sort of dawned on me one day with one of my clients. It was like an early school age client and it, they were having a really hard time figuring out where their tongue should be and where it should go. And so we came up with that idea really, really well for this client. I thought, geez, I should maybe use that with some of my other clients. And it's worked really well. Um, you know, it, and it's more, I mean, with K, you want the back of the tongue to hit and release. So with the scraping of the tongue, you hold the tongue there and it, and I'll even have kids often close their eyes while they do it so that they can really isolate 
the tactile cue of where their tongue is supposed to be. Um, so they, they're really focusing what they're thinking about on how it feels and where it is. So, so that's been really helpful for K. Uh, with G, I often refer it, like it, it can be Gordo Gorilla with zoophonics, but I've told kids it's like gulping. Um, so like you're taking a glass of water and you're gulping it down really quickly. So that I, probably lots of people have tried that one. I've even had kids actually gulp a glass of water just, you know, with a little Dixie cup or something like that, just so they can get a sense of what it would be like, almost like a hard swallow. And, uh, that's worked quite well. Now I find with K and G, I, I have worked more on K than I work on G because I do find that when kids get a good K sound, uh, they can transition fairly quickly over to G. So I usually start with K. Now, some people might, it depends too, because we're talking about just shaping strategies. So it, it's all gonna depend on whether you're working on, you know, artic straight articulation in the traditional sense or whether you're working on phonological processes too. So if you've got voicing concerns, then you have to think about that as well. So it's, it's you know, kind of, these are more strategies once you've chosen your targets and, and deciding, you know, beforehand how you're gonna work on those. So yeah, you know, we talk about quiet noisy sounds a lot because when you think about, you know, paired sounds like K and G, the, you know, one is quiet, one is noisy. That's what their counterparts are. So it's good for kids to, you know, have an understanding of that. Uh, and also, I mean, with minimal pairs using K and T together, um, I, I've had like pictures of like a key and T where I put a reinforcer on the K, the keyword. And if they say T, then I, I, they don't get the reinforcer. Or I just slide them something empty and they'll say, well, I wanted, you know. So just to get them to sort of be a little bit more motivated to kind of shape the back of that sound. And, but I mean, kids, it's hard for kids because, you know, they'll say to me, you know, I, I want the, the T and I'll say, well, you want the T and they'll say, no, I don't want the T. I want the T. <laughs> and they don't even realize that they're not using the target sound, you know, so they don't have a lot of that self-awareness. And so it's nice to be able to work on not just the production, but the listening aspect of it too, because I think they tie well together. Thank you for running through that. I really like how you suggested like closing your eyes. Because I've never done that with a kid. And I can imagine that they just kind of close their eyes and just focus on the speech. They can like feel it more. It can increase their awareness of where their tongue is going. That makes so much sense. It hones in their focus too on what they're yeah, doing. That makes a lot of sense. So we did F, bite and blow, K, coughing, G, gulping. And now um, do you want to do sh and ch? So when I'm working on sh, I almost always work on ch too, for some reason. Like I said, with K, I don't often have to work on G, but it seems to be the opposite with sh and ch. Now, having said that, if we think about those palatal sounds, sh, ch, j, j, I rarely work on j or j, <laughs> very rarely. Um, sometimes I will, but not very often in my uh, the years that I've been working. So, but sh I, I tell them with the kids, it's like a soft, quiet sound. Uh, and with the ch, we call it the, the crunchy or crispy sound. So I'll often talk to them about food. If you were, you know, chewing a certain type of food, 
what type of food would you uh, link to more like a sh sound? Would it be a donut, a soft donut or a piece of bread? If it was a ch sound, it would be maybe a crunchy chip or a cookie, you know, something like that. Just to kind of give them a, a, a visualization of how they can think about that sound because I think that that's important for production. Um, so, you know, often if I'm working on sh as well, uh, so I've called sh the shy sheep sound. Um, I've called the ch sound, the cheeky chick sound. Now that came from, gosh, I don't even remember how that came about. I think it might have something to do with animated literacy or something years ago, which was a really popular program. But um, the only thing about a lot of the literacy programs like Zoophonics is they don't have a ch or a sh really that they work on because they only work on like the S and the C, right? So they don't have those kind of palatal digraph type sounds represented because they're really just working on A to Z, the alphabet letters. So um, I, you know, that's that's what I'd refer to them as shy sheep or cheeky chick. With the sh sound, I have taken my fingers and like physically, and Shen can see me, so she knows what I'm doing. I've taken my fingers and I've pulled the cheeks forward into the sh position, and then I've had them blow and let the air come out through their cheeks. And so, you know, so you kind of pull forward, sh, and you hold it there. Now with the ch sound, I've done the same thing, but instead of pulling and holding, I just press and release. So I go, you know, so I push my cheeks in to kind of pinch, almost like you're not pinching your teeth, you're pushing them in, but, and then I release. So it, it sounds a little bit more crunchy and we kind of alternate between that. Now, having said that, I don't always work on ch if I'm working on ch or vice versa, but sometimes, especially with older school age kids, because those are later developing sounds. And so they might be just a, a lingering sound that your, you know, older school age child has. So they are a little bit more self-aware of, you know, how sounds can be paired and their literacy skills are a little more advanced. And so you can use a lot, you know, more combinations of sounds without being too confusing, I find with older kids. With the sh sound, it's a, a push and hold. And with the ch sound, it's a push and release. That's where I have to describe that to them I usually help them out with that too so yeah okay all right that's so helpful I've never thought about even just seeing you push and hold for sh and then tap and release it makes so much sense that tactile information for them it really so with manner too like that I yeah. find that tactile help with the manner of the sound whereas you know sh and sh are fairly visual like f is and so that's what it is nice to have that visual look you know with a mirror you know your camera phone something like that so yeah. but but yeah sometimes you just need a tactile cue to to sort of figure out you know where does my air need to go and you know what do, what need what does it need to sound like but how can I make it sound that way by actually physically manipulating my face <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah all right thank you so you've run through f k and g sh and ch and now l <laughs> Well, L is like, I have a lot of L kids, so here we go. <laughs> we, we all have a lot of L kids, right? I mean, how, how many kids do we know that say Y-in for lion, right? You know, we have kids that say yamp for lamp. Personally, the W substitution tends to be a little bit easier transition for me than the Y sound because Y is way further back than W. At least when you have a W substitution for L, everything is still fairly forward in the oral cavity. Uh, but having said that, you know, sometimes the, you know, 
it being as opposite with you being so far back with the back of the tongue and, you know, transitioning to the L, which is sort of midline with, you know, I find ye and, and le sound so similar that it's really hard for kids to hear the difference between those two sometimes. But uh, anyway, we work with what we have to. So <laughs> I, I have always referred to L as the lazy lion sound. Only recently because of zoophonics and the kids that I work with, they call it a, a lizzy lizard. And they take their hands and they, cause with the zoophonics, there's an animal associated with each letter of the alphabet but there's also um, an action associated with it too. So with Lizzie Lizard, they take the, they interlace their fingers together and put it underneath their chin and they go, mm. so they're basically using, you know, kind of trying to lift up the, the, the tongue a little bit under the, the chin. So I don't find it a great shaping strategy from an articulation perspective, but it is something that a lot of my kids learn through zoophonics. And so I try to incorporate that if I can. Um, but I mean, with L, um, really, you just want kids to figure out where their tongue tip goes, right? And I find it a little bit variable as far as placement, because there are a lot of kids that have a more forward tongue tip position, and they still have a perfectly decent L sound, the quality is still great. Uh, whereas some, you know, it's more closer to that, you know, where the hard and soft palate meet you know, it, they tend to have that, that's probably more our very specific placement cue that we learn as speech pathologists about where your tongue tip's supposed to go. But I've also had some kids who lift their tongue literally in front of their upper teeth. And if you weren't looking at where their tongue goes, you wouldn't even notice the difference in the sound between L. So kind of like I was talking about with F where uh, instead of biting and blowing, the kids were just putting their lips together to make the F sound. So kids can be very inventive and very imaginative and on how they make their sounds and they can make certain things work. Now, I do find that you may not always be really specific with placement um, if kids are, if that pattern is very ingrained at first, but you do need to work correct placement in eventually. So if you're just trying to get the manner, maybe you might be a little bit, you know, uh, more flexible about where they put their tongue. But if you're having a hard time getting the manner that you need to, how that is really supposed to sound, then you probably need to go back and be more specific. You want your tongue to be in a very specific spot. And so you have to be very specific on the cues and the instructions that you give kids. So you can let that manner or that placement go if you're getting good manner, but eventually you're going to have to be more specific with placement. You're going to have to put both two together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Got it. Yeah. So I, I have used, um, you know, peanut butter, uh, sugar to like place on the ridge, you know, of the, the alveolar ridge where you want your tongue to go. Um, I've used honey. I find things that are sticky work better. So, you know, if I find sugar kind of, once they get their tongue up there a couple of times, the sweetness spreads and then the tongue's kind of all over the place. So food is kind of fun and you can do that initially when shaping, but you know, again, having them close their eyes and imagine where their tongue needs to go, you know, um, and really, I mean, W is a very visual sound and it's a very common substituted sound for L. So you don't see your tongue 
with you when you do a W, right? You see your lips formed in a an O rounded sound. So I I will often use the vowel E as well to get um, the tongue tip. So because it's a midline kind of you know elevated vowel, so E works well on getting kids to realize that they need to spread their lips a little bit, open up their jaw, and get their tongue up. So. Uh, we've used that as well. So it, it's it's a tricky sound, but I find it's visual enough that kids, if they're looking at themselves in a mirror, the camera feedback, that they can get a sense of when their tongue is lifting and when it's not. And uh, also just giving them those minimal pairs with L and W, having them realize, okay, I'm lifting my tongue, I'm not lifting my tongue. And so it can be sometimes as simple as just that feedback. Is my tongue going up or is it just sitting at the bottom, you know, of my oral cavity? So uh, being specific with the feedback and also letting them see themselves, letting them hear themselves, you know, uh, it can be very helpful as well. Alrighty. So we will be continuing on with that episode next week. We talked for another like 35 minutes. So stay tuned for that. We go through some more sounds that are really common and we also discuss feedback. I'm so excited for you guys to hear all of Carrie's idea, ideas for feedback. So I will see you then. So have a good week. Yeah.